Why does God send judgments in force? How do we know that Daniel wrote Daniel? And why does God need to judge the entire planet in Revelation? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a brand new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. My name is Luke Taylor, and I'm a minister and a son-in-law. And since I am a son-in-law, that means I have a mother-in-law. Now, many people complain about their mother-in-laws. I'm pretty thankful for mine, actually, my mother-in-law. Uh, is pretty awesome, and and she seems to think that I'm pretty great, too, for for some reason. Uh, However, I will tell you today, I'm not as great as Job or Noah or Daniel, and I'm going to explain why later that that's actually a real bummer for me. Uh, Recently, I was scrolling through YouTube. I came across a Jordan Peterson video. If you don't know Jordan Peterson, he wrote a popular book several years ago called 12 Rules for Life. I think, like, there's actually a sequel to it out now. It's called, like, 12 More Rules for Life or something like that. It's not such an original naming convention, if you ask me. I I read 12 Rules for Life a few years back, and I think it's a bit overrated. Uh, Jordan Peterson, he's a psychologist, and I suspect he also voices a character or two on Sesame Street. He writes on psychology and self-help and literature. I mean, he's brilliant on talking about a lot of social issues and and history subjects. Um, But that said, I didn't get a whole lot out of his book. I thought it was kind of average, actually, you know, as far as books of that nature go. I didn't hate it. I just didn't think that, like, the advice that you find in it was personally super life-changing. I go to the Bible for my wisdom and and self-help and direction when it comes to the issues of life. And, And, you know, that's not to say that Jordan Peterson is a waste of time to read. I'm just saying I get a bit more out of Christian authors. Um, And because, you know, sad to say, as brilliant as Jordan Peterson is— He's not a Christian. Uh, He's probably about as close as you can get to being a Christian without actually taking the plunge and being a real Christian. See, Jordan Peterson, he studies more Bible than most Christians do. I mean, he knows more Bible than most Christians do. He, He cries as he talks about Jesus and how Jesus has inspired and impacted him. But he hasn't quite made the step of believing in Jesus as the Son of God. And so I pray for him. And and anyway, I stumbled across this video of of Jordan Peterson. He's talking about the amazing interconnectedness of the Bible. It is astounding to me to hear someone who's not a Christian and yet still recognizes the the intricacies of Scripture. And and even how, like, things that were written toward the beginning of the Bible, how they seem to anticipate what would later be written at the end of the Bible, hundreds of years later, by a totally different author. Jordan Peterson speaks about... Um, in this video I'm going to play, he speaks about this graphic image that he shows. A graphic as in like a um, a uh, illustration, okay? And this, this illustration, since you can't see it, I'll have to explain it to you. But on the screen that he shows, it depicts the 66 books of the Bible, and it shows all of the connections that you can find amongst them. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. It looks almost like a rainbow. It's, just, it's this lineup of all the books of the Bible, and then there's lines drawn between them, that each one of these lines, and there's there's many, 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 many lines on this photo, 
all these lines represent a a connection that you can find between two verses in two different Bible books. And, and so let me just play this real quick. I want to show you something here, just briefly. We'll go back to it later. Look at this. This is the co- one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So at the bottom here, every single one of those lines is a biblical verse. Okay? Now, the length of the line is proportionate to how many times that verse is referred to in some way by some other verse. So you say, well, this is the first hyperlinked book, right? I'm, I'm dead serious about that. It, like, that you can't click and get the hyperlinks, obviously, but it's a thoroughly hyperlinked book, and it's because, well, the people who worked on these stories that are hypothetically at the end, right, which is the end can't affect the beginning. That's, that's the rule of time, right? What happens now can't affect what happened to you 10 years ago, even though it actually can, but whatever. <laughs> Well, you reinterpret things, right? And then they're not the same, but whatever. We won't get into that. But technically speaking, the present cannot affect the past. But if you were looking at a piece of literature, that's not right. Because when you write the end, you know what was at the beginning. And when you write the beginning or edit it, you know what's at the end. And so you can weave the whole thing together. And there's 65,000 cross-references. And that's what this map shows. And so that's a great visual representation of the book. And then you can see, well, why is it deep? Why is the book deep? Well, just imagine how many pathways you could take through that, right? I mean, you'd just journey through, you'd just journey through that forever. You'd never, ever get to the end of it. There's permutations and combinations, and every phrase is dependent on every other phrase, and every verse is dependent on every other, not, not entirely, but 65,000 is not a bad start. What I love about this clip is how excited that this non-Christian seems to be about how amazingly constructed the Bible is, about how these books that were written by 40-plus authors, how they can have thousands upon thousands of cross-references amongst them. Um, probably more cross-references you know, in the Bible than any book out there that was, that was written by just one author. <laughs> I, I'd also mention the Bible did actually have one author, and, and that was God. Uh, this book, the Bible, it's so amazingly interconnected with so many verses intertwined. Only a supernatural God could have created this amazing book. And that's why I made this podcast. It's because I want to uncover a lot of these, a lot of these intricacies and these connections. That's why it's called cross references because the Bible's full of them. Uh, And according to Jordan Peterson, you know, I could probably do 65,000 episodes talking about them, but what I've said so far it's not really about this episode specifically today. I'm just kind of giving more of a of a reintroduction to why I do this podcast in general. Uh, I like to uncover these cross-references. And on this episode specifically today, we do have a lot of cross-references contained within it. So we're going to get back into the book of Ezekiel today. We're going to cover the second half of chapter 14. Uh, or if you remember earlier in Ezekiel, somewhere around chapter 7, we talked about how God is the Lord who strikes Well, today we're going to find out what God strikes with. This chapter contains the four things that God strikes with when he decides to bring total destruction on a nation. And this chapter contains many connections to things that happened before Ezekiel's time and also things that haven't even happened yet. Um, So we're going to look at some of these connections and then we'll, we'll end today with the other reason that I named my podcast what I named it, how this chapter points to the cross. So get your Bible ready to go back to Ezekiel, and let's see what God wants to show us today. One thing that I said when I began this podcast is that this is primarily 
a Bible study. It's not a sermon. Uh, and so what that means, like the difference is that, you know, sometimes I'll have an application, some kind of takeaway that we can um, that we can take away from a passage that we look at. Sometimes we're going to have that. Sometimes we won't. Okay, I would love to always have an application, but I'm not going to force it if I just can't directly pull one. Okay, and that might surprise you to hear because, you know, I said that early on, but I almost always do have applications to draw from on the passages that we studied this week, uh, especially on these Ezekiel studies. And we have way more applications than I thought we would. Uh, honestly, Ezekiel has just been so much more relevant to our lives than I even thought it would be back whenever I started into it uh, on this podcast. So um, anyway, I say all that to say, I'm probably not gonna have a huge application today. Uh, most of our time in today's lesson, it's really gonna be spent on understanding the passage itself. So Ezekiel 14, we're gonna pick it up at verse 12. Last time we went through uh, verse 11. So starting at verse 12 today, and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives but their right, by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. So God is putting a hypothetical out there to Ezekiel. Um, it is obviously about Israel, but God's giving this standard that he would apply to all nations at all times. So, you know, he takes a hypothetical nation here. He says, hey, Ezekiel, if a nation loses faith, okay, meaning if a nation turns its back on God in a collective sense, then one thing that God might do is cause them to have a food shortage. That can actually be a punishment of God on a nation. And God's telling Ezekiel, this is one of the things that God does to a wicked nation. So he's saying, you know, Ezekiel, if you see this happening to Israel, then you all can deduce that Israel is being punished for its sin. God even says in these verses, he says, if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in Israel, God's still not going to spare the nation. Like, that's how bad things are in Israel. Even those righteous men would not stop God's wrath at this point. And, and that's a little bit, you know, it's a little strange of a strange thing to say. As far as Bible passages go, you don't really see a line like that very much. Um, and, and even these three guys, it's kind of rare that they even get a shout out at all in, you know, in other books of the Bible outside of their own stories. Um, Noah sometimes does. I can't think of anywhere that Daniel gets a shout out or even Job, you know, other than their own books, I can't think of anywhere where they get mentioned. So we'll talk about why it was perhaps these three men that get mentioned here. We'll, we'll talk about that in a few moments, but, but first I just want to mention the method of judgment that God is bringing up here in this chapter, God is going to go through the, the kind of this formula that we just went through there. He's going to go through it four times. He's going to say, when a nation sins, this is what I'm going to do to it. And so he brings up four different types of things that God does in this chapter, four types of judgment that a nation could expect. Now, why four? Let's just talk about that number for a minute. Why the number four? Well, God often speaks of judgment as things in groups of four. It's often the same four, but, you know, there could be some variations in there. Uh, when, but, but when God is going to bring comprehensive judgment on a nation, like when God just wants to bring a nation down to the ground— God is going to bring four judgments against it. So it's it's just that number four comes up a lot. Uh, the NIV applica application commentary on um, Ezekiel by Daniel Block, it says, the adoption of a four-strike rhetorical strategy highlights the thoroughness of the impending destruction. So the number four just implies being thorough or comprehensive. You just see the number four used throughout the Bible to mean 
all of something. Like whenever it says to, to the four corners of the earth, you know, that means the whole earth. It means in every direction. Four just means comprehensiveness. Uh, probably the most famous example like this are the four horsemen that you see in Revelation. And often they're called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We did a, four episodes on those guys back in the summer. So the number four, it just means a comprehensive and complete judgment. Usually God uses this judgment Florida uh, formula against a particular country, um, usually Israel. In Revelation 6, it happens to be against the entire world. Because in the tribulation, God is leveling the whole world and getting it ready for the millennial reign of Christ. When Jesus comes back, the whole world order is getting replaced. His kingdom is going to cover the entire world. So the whole world needs to come crashing down to get out of the way for Christ's kingdom. So in that prophecy, it's referring to a judgment on the whole world. Back here in Ezekiel, God's speaking on more of a smaller scale and like when his judgment is just focused on one nation. So God gives one of his four judgments that he'll bring on a nation right here. He says he'll bring famine. God even says if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, that still wouldn't hold back God's judgment if that nation has truly turned its back on God. All right, let's look at the second judgment. Ezekiel 12, verses 15 and 16. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and it be made desolate, so that no one may pass through it because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, they alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. The second judgment that God threatens with is wild beasts that will attack the land. When when animals attack, this is the one out of the four, it's the one that always just seems the most kind of bizarre, the, the most far removed from what our modern experience is. It, you know, it's hard to imagine nowadays hordes of animals that were just killing large swaths of the population. Um, it's hard to even imagine it in ancient times. You know, we see it in disaster movies sometimes, or maybe movies like Jumanji. Uh, but those are, you know, they're pretty much fantasy. We don't really have a modern equivalent of that. Um, but it's a very common threat that actually God makes in the Bible. And I want to bring up something about this that I mentioned back in the summer, back when we were doing our study on the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I think on the fourth one there, it mentioned this. And um, in Revelation 6, God talks about killing people around the world with wild beasts, just like right here. So in that passage, and that was in Greek, but the word for wild beasts over there in the Greek, it was therion. And and what I learned about that is that that's a broad enough word that could it could also mean viruses or bacteria. Um, Because those are also a type of life form. So I I guess what I was reading on that was that um, that is a broad enough word that like the meaning is, I don't know, vague or general enough that it could encompass even things like viruses or bacteria. Um, So could a virus be like what God's talking about here? A wild beast that just rips through swaths of the population. I'd say perhaps it could, you know, perhaps that's what God is referring to when he says wild beasts, not just lions and tigers, but could be talking about a plague, um, you know, a, mi- a much more microscopic, but still a very deadly type of, of beast right there. And note that God brings up the three men again, and he adds this comment. He says, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. Here's why I think Ezekiel adds that, because the people in Tel Aviv uh, that Ezekiel is talking to directly, well, right now they are likely separated from family members. Uh, the elders often crowd around Ezekiel. You know, their children are probably back in Jerusalem and and their grown children, you know, 
children who should know better. But, you know, I think Ezekiel here, he could be making this point, or, I mean, God is making this point through Ezekiel, but that whenever you look at the stories of Daniel and Job and Noah, uh, one thing that you notice is they often saved other people due to their own righteous acts. Noah built that boat, and his whole family got saved. Actually, that was, you know, anybody who got on the boat with Noah, anybody was able to be saved. Um, it was anyone's own choice. And so ultimately, he saves his whole family from the flood. At the end of the book of Job, Job prayed and saved his friends. Uh, and Daniel, Daniel prays, and he interrupts, uh, he interprets the king's dream over there in Daniel chapter 2. And by him doing that, it got all the Jewish captives saved, be, saved because the king had put out this execution order on them. Um, so these men that God is pointing out here, they were known for being so righteous that, you know, even other people in their proximity, people associated with them, were, were able to be saved. Not just saving themselves, but they saved other people. And God is saying here that whenever he comes against a nation to judge it because it has rebelled or acted faithlessly against him, God is just saying here, by the way, I'm judging everybody, you know, even if hypothetically, even if Noah or Daniel or Job were even there, God says, I might save those guys, but they ain't getting anybody else saved. So everybody's going to be responsible for themselves. They aren't delivering sons and daughters this time. Everyone will pay for what they've done, you know, if they're guilty. Okay, now for the third judgment, Ezekiel 14, verses 17 and 18. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, let a sword pass through the land, and I cut off from it man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. The third judgment that a nation can earn is the sword. And God has been pretty clear about the sword all through this book, that Babylon's armies are coming to conquer Jerusalem. And so when God threatens you with the sword, you know, it means God is bringing an enemy against you to conquer you. Um, if you've been faithful, if you have been faithful, God is going to give you the power to overcome that enemy. But if you're cowardly or evil, God says, I'll let the enemy do what they want. And we saw this as Israel wandered through the wilderness, you know, back in the book of Exodus and Numbers, that when they entered into the promised land in, uh, in the book of Joshua, it, same thing in all of Israel's history. We see that when the people trusted in God, they had victory over their enemies. And then whenever the people were acting up, they lost to their enemies. Uh, like when Achan, when he stole the idols that he wasn't supposed to, then Israel lost a battle. When Jehoshaphat, when he rode into battle praising God, they won the battle. So a key idea to remember is that your attitude toward God is a greater factor in the battles of life than the strength of your enemies or the firepower you possess. Let me just say that again. Your attitude toward God is a greater factor in the battles of life than the strength of your enemies or the firepower you possess. Because honestly, if we have God on our side, then you have all the firepower you need. You have... You have heaven's resources at your disposal, and the enemy can't do anything against you. Isaiah 54, 17, it says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. If you stay on God's side, he says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. But, you know, if you turn against God, then he'll even turn the sword against you. 
So pretty simple. You know, any questions out there about that? I think it's pretty clear how that works. All right, so back to Ezekiel 14, verses 19 and 20. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. So again, kind of the same formula right here. That was the fourth strike that he talks about. If you look in the show notes, I've titled our sections today, strike one, strike two, strike three, and four. Because we're used to saying strike three or like three strikes, you're out. Well, God has a four strike formula that we see here in this passage. Strike one was famine. Strike two was wild beasts. Strike three was the sword. And by the way, those correspond to the second, third, and fourth horsemen in Revelation 6. Now this part here, it adds in pestilence. Okay, pestilence is another word for a fatal epidemic disease. Uh, you can find this in Revelation 6, um, but I would say more so these judgments, they actually correspond more directly to something talked about in Leviticus 26. You see, God had put all this out there, like what he would do to a nation if it turned against him. He put this all out there back in the book of Leviticus. If you look at when God gave Moses what we call the the Levitical covenant or the Mosaic covenant, this is what he said. Leviticus 26, and I'm going to start at verse 22. This is what they say, and I'm just going to say it sounds very familiar to what we've just read today in Ezekiel. God said, And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children, and destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. What what I just read right there, a lot of lines that I read from Leviticus 26, they are directly carried over right here into Ezekiel 14. This is what we would call a pure cross-reference. And several of them, actually. Many of the terms used in Leviticus are just repeated verbatim in Ezekiel. Leviticus lays out the covenant. It's a book about a contract. It says, Israel, you do this. God will do that. If you don't do this, here's what God's going to do instead. So Leviticus 26, it gives all these stipulations to the contract. And we see that God is very like specific. Um, if you want to know how specific, like, go back to episode 18 of this show and just listen to how amazingly God was specific back there in Leviticus 26, that when God says he is going to strike you sevenfold, I mean, God literally got out his cal- calculator and he made sure that the judgment was exactly sevenfold. Okay, I'm kidding about the calculator, but, you know, we could get out our calculators. We could see that God was precisely specific on all this. God's judgment was given out in a very precise manner. And we talk about that back in, again, that was episode 18. Mind-blowing episode, okay? You got to go back and and listen to what we talked about there. God's judgment is given out in a precise measure. You know, God, God is saying, if Noah was standing among you, he wouldn't get sick. Everyone else around him would get sick. But my judgment is only going to fall on the wicked, not the righteous. And so he said, Noah's righteousness, it would deliver him, but it's not saving anybody else. 
Now, I brought this up before. Why is it those three men, uh, Noah, Daniel, and Job, why are they the ones getting mentioned? Well, like I said earlier, you know, it's kind of rare that these guys would even get a shout out in the Bible other than their actual stories. You know, Noah, um, he's talked about in Genesis. After that, he's only mentioned in the Old Testament, again, in Isaiah and in First Chronicles. Um, that's it. Job, he's only talked about in the book of Job. Daniel's, you know, it's actually really interesting that Daniel is mentioned here. Because Daniel's story is not even done yet at the time that Ezekiel is writing this. I think only the first few chapters of a Daniel, they've even, only the first few chapters had even happened by this time. And, and I've said a few times how, like, Jeremiah, he was a contemporary of Ezekiel, and Daniel, it, he was as well. Um, one thing about Daniel's story in the book of Daniel, it covers 70 or 80 years of history. So there's some overlap between some of these books. Um, but, but, okay, so here, the book of Daniel's not even done yet. They might not have even started writing it yet at this point. But um, Daniel has already made quite a name for himself. You know, even though he's probably just in his 20s at the time that Ezekiel is writing this. Uh, and he's probably younger than Ezekiel himself. But Daniel was such a righteous, faithful, loyal guy. Like, he's already getting a, sh a mention over here where Ezekiel is. Uh, like, Daniel was a Babylonian captive just like Ezekiel was. But, you know, he's already made a good reputation for himself. Um, if I was going to pull one application for you today, that would probably be it. The, the importance of... Uh, the value of a, of a good reputation. Like we see that Daniel had a, but this book's not even out yet and he's already got a reputation. He's getting mentioned in Ezekiel's book. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, so back to the point of what I was saying before. Um, or let me say one more thing about Daniel. This, this, so this is, this is actually kind of interesting. There's a bit of a scholarly debate about whether right here in Ezekiel, if he's actually talking about the biblical Daniel here in chapter 14 of Ezekiel, because some scholars, they think, oh, it, you know, he's probably talking about this famous pagan king who was named Daniel. That, that's what some people actually try to say. Because they say not enough people would have heard of the Jewish Daniel at this time. And, and so some of the reasons they say this um, are because of the spelling of his name. And I think this Daniel king, he gets a shout out later in this book. Uh, but even still, I think it's a little silly to, to think that it's talking about some guy named Dan L right here. Uh, you know, I don't mean any disrespect to those scholars who say that, but, but look at what God is saying here in this. God is talking about the judgment that he's sending on Jerusalem because they had rebelled. They had turned to worshiping false gods. So I don't think God is telling Jerusalem here, hey, why couldn't you be as righteous as this pagan king over here, Dan L? You know, that wouldn't even make sense, like to lift up a pagan king as if he's some paragon of virtue. So um, I know I'm pretty sure this is talking about the Daniel in the book of Daniel. And, and this actually makes a really powerful apologetic for the book of Daniel itself. The book of Daniel is one of those books. That it has some of the most important prophecies in the entire Bible. Like I would say it's the second most important book on prophecy in scripture. Revelation's obviously the most important, but I would say Daniel's the second most. Um, Daniel even includes some of the most specific prophecies in the entire Bible. Look for that in, in the next episode of this podcast. We're going to be in the book of Daniel talking about just that. Some of the most specific prophecies in the Bible. And you might not realize this, but Daniel has prophesied a lot of things that have already come to pass. Daniel prophesied about nations like Persia and Greece 
in Rome. He talked about important historical figures like Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes. Daniel's prophecies, they were so precise. Many people say, like, there's no way that Daniel actually wrote that book before those things happen. You know, there people just can't believe it because his prophecies are so specific and precise. People think he must have wrote it as a history book and then they, someone pretended it was prophecy. <laughs> they think that that Daniel was actually written around the time of Jesus. And then Daniel, the person, was just invented as some kind of legend. Um, so a lot of people try to say this. Uh, even so-called, what, what, we, what we would call like liberal Christian scholars, okay? Even a lot of these so-called Christian scholars will just refuse to accept that Daniel was written by Daniel. They try to say that, no, he actually lived hundreds of years later. And so that's one of the reasons I love that Daniel gets this shout out right over here in Ezekiel. It shows that, no, Daniel was already making headlines at the time that we believe he was writing his book. So Ezekiel proves that Daniel was one of his contemporaries. Because this little mention here in Ezekiel 14, it actually gives credibility to the historicity of Daniel's own existence, that he wasn't some legend that was invented hundreds of years later. And so that, that you know, that's just another proof that, that Daniel actually was a real person and that he wrote these prophecies that are in the book of Daniel. And, and you know, that, that they are real prophecies because, yes, they are very specific. Yes, things unfolded exactly how Daniel said they would. That's because he got his prophecies from God. You know, that's the miracle of prophecy, <laughs> that you hear about things in advance, right? So, um, th again, they're just so mind-blowingly accurate that a lot of people don't want to admit that Daniel could have actually been written by the real Daniel. Uh, or they started to say he was just some kind of legend. So the fact that Daniel gets this little mention over here in Ezekiel 14, I just love it. So it shows that it gives some more credibility to, to Daniel's book. Um, let me get back to what I was saying before, though. I want to mention this. Why are these three guys mentioned? Because like I, what I was saying before, it's very rare that like one of these Bible characters gets a mention outside of their own book of the Bible that they have. So, like this is the only place Daniel is mentioned other than the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. So why are they, why are they brought up? Well, I'd say um, they are great examples of being a righteous person in an unrighteous time. All three of these men um, were examples of not being like everyone else in the world around them. You know, so they, that, that was probably why God's bringing them up here. And, and then, as I said before, they were also known for delivering other people, not just themselves, but delivering even other people who were in close proximity to them, people associated with them. Um, when God saved Noah, anyone who got on the boat with Noah was also saved. So, um, that, you know, that God's bringing them up here, but again, he's, he's using them as a contrast. He's saying, well, if they were here today, I might save them, but I'm not saving anyone else. You know, so now everyone's just responsible for themselves. And that's the contrast that God is, is, is pulling here by bringing up these guys again and again. So um, we're going to go into the last section of verses for today. And here's where God puts a pin into all of this. Uh, Ezekiel 14, verses 21 through 23. For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. But behold, some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you and you see their ways and their deeds... You will be consoled for the disaster that I've brought upon Jerusalem, 
for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds. And you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. God's last comment on this matter of judgment is to say that someday it's all going to make sense. Like whenever you're watching Jerusalem be destroyed and you're wondering why God would let his sacred city be ravished and you're wondering why God would let his chosen people be wiped out. It's going to be hard to comprehend. It's going to be hard to wrap our minds around. But God says, someday you'll understand and it'll all make sense and you'll even feel good about it. (laughs) That's right. He says, you'll even feel good about it. Like, why would you feel good about seeing your city destroyed? Well, here's a couple things to consider. Perhaps the wickedness of the city will be so plain that like whenever it becomes plain to everyone how bad the people were within it, we will actually be glad that they were all wiped out. Perhaps whenever we see what happens to that city later, you know, even hundreds of years later, we'll be okay with the fact that God had to wipe it out and start over. You know, that makes sense to me. We read about these judgments in Revelation and how the whole world will be suffering. And, and, you know, if we have a front row seat to it all, we'd be wondering why it's so necessary to inflict that misery on the world. But as I said before, God is going to do all that stuff to prepare the world for the kingdom of Christ, where Jesus rules from a throne in Jerusalem. So perhaps we'll see the millennial kingdom of Christ and we're going to say, oh, that's why we needed all that destruction for seven years. So it could get us to a thousand years of peace. All that pain had a point. And we'll say it was worth it for the outcome. And the word that God uses in this chapter is consoled. That you'll be consoled someday. Right now, we know in part, but someday we'll know fully. 1 Corinthians 13 says that. And I believe it's talking about heaven. That someday we'll be in heaven and all the sufferings of this world will finally make sense. So we're going to close down soon with um, a quick recap, some personal application of this chapter. Let me just say, if you have a question on anything we talked about today, just leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take any questions you have or recommendations on the subjects you'd like to hear about in the future. Next time on this show, I'm going to talk about, um, if you were listening to the previous episode, you, you heard me mention this. I'm going to talk about the 70 weeks prophecy that's found in the book of Daniel. So if you listen to our previous couple of episodes, you probably heard me talking about this. Um, We had a special guest on the program who's also named Daniel, by the way, Daniel Moore. He's the host of a podcast called Connecting the Gap. And uh, we talked about Daniel's 70 weeks. And as you know, as I worked on that, I thought, I've been intending to do an episode on the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel for, you know, the longest time. Um, It's one of those things that I think is just so important for Christians to understand. And yet, I would say it's something that that very, very few Christians have ever actually studied. And not only that, I mean, this is an important thing to know. I'd say it's probably the most important chapter on Bible prophecy in the entire Bible. Uh, one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I wanted to talk about things like the 70 weeks prophecy in, in Daniel. So um, that's what we're going to be talking about next time. And next episode is episode number 50. That feels kind of like a milestone. So I decided to do an extra special episode on that one. That's why we're going to be talking about Daniel's 70 weeks. So make sure you're here for that. 
Um, bring a pencil and paper because there's going to be some math involved. But trust me, it's worth it. All right. Um, oh, you know what? I'm just going to mention how I kind of foresee the rest of the year going. Because at the time that that you're listening to this, um, if you're listening to it new, we have one month left in 2022. And so we're here in December. December is always a busy month, especially for Christians and churches out there. So here's what I have planned for the next few months so that I don't get too bogged down. Um, I, I wouldn't, for one thing, I'm recording a lot of these ahead of time. I'm recording this today. It's, it's, uh, early October. So I'm far ahead. I'm trying to get ahead of the curve here. Uh, but next time I'll be talking about Ezekiel 15 and that's probably the shortest chapter in Ezekiel. So we're going to cover that whole chapter in one lesson, but I'm going to hold off on launching into Ezekiel 16. I want to hold off on that until January. The reason being Ezekiel 16, that one is actually the, that's probably the longest chapter that Ezekiel has. I'm not sure if it's going to take me two or three, maybe even four lessons just to get through that one. So I'm going to save that for January and I will spend the rest of December just talking about, um, I want to talk about Christmas. You know, I got to do that. So we did a, we did some special Christmas episodes last year and I'm, I've got one that I say, I didn't do it last year. I wanted to save it for this year. So Got one coming up for this year, um, cross-references that that relate to Christmas. And so that's coming in a few weeks. Um, I, I probably during Christmas break time, I think I'm just going to share a sermon or two that I did earlier in the year at different churches. And I, I'm going to, I'm probably going to try to, to share one of the, one of those um, during the Christmas break time. So working on that. And then uh, in January, um, Got some exciting stuff for January. Some really big lessons planned, like stuff that's going to take me a lot of research to do. So another reason I'm getting ahead of the curve, I got a lot of research to do between now and January. I want to do a discussion on transgenderism versus the Bible. That's just become such a huge issue in modern times. So I want to do two or three episodes just on the transgender subject coming up. And uh, and I also have another matter I would like to discuss. I want to talk about whether niceness is a Christian virtue. <laughs> is it virtuous to be nice? Um, I know that sounds kind of obvious that it that it would be. And yet I just keep getting struck by how if you look at Jesus, he could be really sarcastic sometimes. He could be what we might say is harsh at times. Like Jesus could just be a very blunt guy. So what I would like to do is probably just spend an episode analyzing that. Like whether whether perhaps we place too great of an emphasis on being nice and inoffensive. So I'm working on that. I'm planning to do an episode or two on why I think it's important that we hold to a a historical Adam and Eve. So um, that's what I'm working on for the future here. Look for episodes on those matters to come up as we begin 2023. Uh, And that's when we'll start into Ezekiel. You know, here's another thing. Ezekiel 16 is extremely sexual. Like it's, um, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it's, it's, it's like one of the most scatological chapters in the whole Bible. There's a word for you to look up today. <laughs> so I I don't feel like getting into that at Christmas time. <laughs> so um, I'll let you know when we come back if I need to put some kind of restricted rating on that episode. But, you know, we're just going to talk about what the Bible says. Okay, I'm not going to try to be graphic, not any more than necessary, but that's a, it's a pretty graphic chapter. So I'm just, I'm just going to hold off on that till next year. Okay, let's recap this chapter. Ezekiel 14. It was teaching us about how God operates and some surprising things about how God operates. Uh, if, if you remember from before, 
on chapter 14, a few episodes back, the first half, it taught us that God is willing to deceive the unrighteous. I'm kind of curious like as to whether I'm going to get some backlash on that one. I've, at the time I'm, re- I'm recording this, that other one has not aired yet. So um, I don't know yet. But I'm wondering if I'm going to get some backlash <laughs> for saying that God is willing to use deception. Uh, th- that sounds a little bit audacious to say. Uh, but I think we see throughout the Bible that God is willing to use deception to achieve his purposes. But but also, I'm not saying he just he just lies to anybody. God doesn't deceive you when you're on his side. But what we saw in, in that lesson was that God will mislead those who have idols of the heart. So that was a very complex, very nuanced lesson. That's why it was my longest episode yet. I like I wanted to make my full case all in one episode. I didn't want to, I didn't want to break that one up into two parts and then have somebody only listen to, to like part one and then think that they understood it and and call me a heretic or something, and not even listen to the whole thing. So I just wanted to do that's why that one was so long. Um, you know, if you listen to it, God bless you. If you didn't, I'm, I don't hold it against you. But uh, th- that's why that one was so long. I just I wanted to make my whole case all all in one take. So, um, I mean, you can still accuse me of being a heretic if you want, but, but I tried to, I tried to back up everything I said in that lesson from scripture, you know, which is what I always try to do. But anyway, we talked all through that issue in the first half of chapter 14, and then we get here to the second half of chapter 14 and what we covered today, we learned about God's four strike formula uh, for judgment. He has a four part judgment routine that he employs. And it was the famine, the sword, the pestilence, the wild beasts. As I said, the wild beasts, perhaps they could refer to sickness and disease. And the order of the four things, I don't think that that matters a whole lot. Uh, but, it, but it's the number four that's the key. Because that refers to a comprehensive program of destruction. And so we just learned from chapter 14 of Ezekiel. We learned some things about how God operates. This is a great chapter for understanding God better. Um what we've got to remember, uh, as, as it pertains to this four-strike formula, God said up front that this formula applies to any hypothetical nation that decides to turn its back on God. It's not necessarily something that's just prophesied against Israel. Any nation that at one time honored God or knew God and then eventually turned its back on him, it could apply to them. So this could apply to a lot of Western nations, I think. Like, I would especially say the United States of America. God says, you know, I can totally bring that nation to its knees if I want to. And as we look at the world and how the Western world is just getting further and further away from God, um, look at what we've been dealing with the past few years. A pandemic. And like I said, that could be wild beasts. That's pestilence right there. We, you know, we've been dealing with that. We, we see this stuff in the news every day right now about food shortages. Uh, it's, It's not too bad right now. But, I mean, the, the news keeps saying that this winter is going to be really, really bad, especially for Europe. So, I mean, we'll see if that pans out. Um, we see the war has broken out over in Europe. You know, the world remains braced to see if it's going to turn into a multi-nation war. As I said, I'm recording this in early October. By the time this episode airs, who knows what you're going to be dealing with? Um, I think it'll air right around Thanksgiving time. I have no idea what's going to be going on in the world that far out. Yeah, stuff changes, it seems like, all the time. And things keep getting worse. And this world is going to learn. There's consequences for whenever you turn your back on God. 
And so the only protection that you have out there is just to remain personally faithful. Because one thing that God is very clear on in this chapter, uh, an idea that he just kept going back to, is that he can keep his hand on you and he can deliver you regardless of what he's doing to the rest of the world. If Noah was in Jerusalem during this judgment, Noah would still be spared. Because somehow God God was going to preserve the godly. So I just say this to all of you out there. Make sure that regardless of what the rest of society is doing, that you need to remain true to God. The passage we read today, it kept bringing up Noah and Daniel and Job. And it just reminded me so much of over there in, in Genesis 18. This is where God's talking to Abraham about the, the carnage that he's going to inflict on Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says he's going to rain down fire from heaven and just wipe those cities out. You know, you probably remember Abraham gets in this like little discussion with God and tries to tries to like barter with God for the cities to be spared. I have no idea how many people lived in those cities, but Abraham's talking to God about it. He's like, hey, what if there's 50 righteous people in that city? Would you let them live then? And, and God says, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, if there's 50 righteous people, I won't touch the cities at all. And then Abraham says, okay, what if there were 40 righteous people? And and he just keeps doing this with God. You know, what if there were 30? What if there were 20? And Abraham gets, I want to say he gets down to 10. You know, he's like, if there's 10 righteous people in the city, would you, would you, with, with, would you stay your hand? And, And God says, yeah, if there were 10 righteous people in that city, I would let it be spared my wrath. So then the angels go down and, and they check out the city. They only find four righteous people. They find Lot, Lot's wife, and Lot's two of his daughters. And they get those four people out of the city. And, you know, even those four, they, they kind of turn out to be lousy people <laughs> anyway, as you keep reading. But, but regardless, like God kept his word. He did not destroy one single righteous person in Sodom. Every single person who stayed in Sodom and remained there, they deserved what they got. Like the only four people who were at all interested in following God, they were able to get out of the city. And, you know, even Lot's wife, she blew her chance as soon as she got clear of it. But but anyway, God makes a way of escape for the righteous. And so I think we can take some comfort in that. And that's your best bet. Regardless of what God has to bring about on America or any country out there, any hypothetical nation that rebels against God, regardless of that, You are still responsible for you. And God says, if you stay true to me, then regardless of what I'm doing to everyone else, I'll take care of you. So as I said at the beginning of this lesson, this was a chapter that was just so rich with cross-references, with things that connect from these verses to other verses in the rest of the Bible, things in the past, even things yet to come. And we learn more about how God works, about how God operates. Verse 23, it actually says, we will be comforted now that we better understand the ways of God. And so chapter 14 of Ezekiel, this was a great chapter for understanding the ways of God. One more cross-reference before we go today, and and this is a very literal cross-reference. It's a reference to the cross. This podcast, you know, as I said before, I'm not just trying to connect individual pieces of the Bible together. I also want to connect them to what Jesus did. This chapter kept emphasizing the righteousness of Noah, Daniel, and Job. Those are three examples of purity and righteousness back there in the Old Testament. They weren't perfect, but they were pretty much as good as it gets when you're trying to find 
a paragon of virtue in the Old Testament. I mean, Moses, you know, he had his flaws. David had his flaws. Ezekiel had his flaws. But when it comes to Noah and Daniel and Job, those guys are really just about as good as it gets. And yet, whenever it came to God's wrath, he said their righteousness would only be enough to deliver themselves. They couldn't even do anything for the people around them. In this chapter, it doesn't explicitly question this, but I'm going to raise the question here. Is there anyone out there righteous enough that they could deliver the people around them? Because I have this problem. I'm not so righteous. Okay, some people might call me a good guy, especially my mother-in-law. But the righteousness of Luke Taylor can only get me so far in this world. You know, definitely not righteous enough to get into heaven. I'm a sinful human being. Uh, Maybe I could escape God's wrath on earth, but what about God's wrath on my sins in the afterlife? I need help. Could Daniel or Job or Noah help me? Not really, because as I said, their righteousness would only be enough to deliver themselves. They couldn't do anything for anyone else. They can't do anything for me. I can't even do anything for me. I can't even become the man that my mother-in-law thinks I am. I mean, I'm trying, but I'll never get there. So what's the solution to my problem? It's Jesus. Jesus was so righteous that his righteousness could save not just me, not even just Jerusalem, but Jesus could save the whole world. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was enough to save all of mankind, to save anyone who would accept his offer and put their faith in him. God has four ways he'll strike with judgment. God only offers one way of salvation. Noah, Daniel, and Job were pretty great, but Jesus is better. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that Jordan Peterson is definitely, probably not really a Sesame Street character.